So as we draw the first sermon series of 2021 to a close, where we've been thinking about the early years of Jesus's life, um, considering different dimensions of his life as a boy growing up, this morning we're going to think about the nurturing of Jesus. So I think it's kind of inevitable that we conclude our thinking at this point in the Bible story, this crossroad that we have in the narrative from Luke's gospel that Claire just read to us, uh, where we leave the pre-teenage Jesus and we reconnect with him just a few verses later in Luke's gospel, but in actuality, 18 years later in the life of Jesus, who is now a young man right at the beginning of his ministry. You may have heard from time to time people uh, talk about the silent years in the Bible. And they're either referring to the 400-year period between the Old and the New Testament, or perhaps less commonly, this 18-year gap in the life of Jesus that is not recorded um, anywhere in the Bible. You can find so many traditions that speculate as to what Jesus did, where he went, what he was up to during these 18 years, the silent years, if you will. Uh, but we're not going to waste any time guessing about what we don't know. I want us to consider rather this morning what we do know and what Luke's gospel does reveal to to be at the heart of this time of, of nurturing and preparation in the life of the young Jesus. Everything that Luke puts in his gospel about Jesus is there because it helps us encounter Jesus, helps us have a relationship with Jesus. It's worth noting that he doesn't leave anything essential out. So maybe everything that we as believers need to know about what was going on during the silent years is actually revealed, at least implicitly. Let's see. Last week, Mark spoke very helpfully about the revelation of Jesus, that he knew who he was when he visits the temple as a 12-year-old. If you didn't catch it, uh, I suggest you listen to it. Uh, now, if you did uh, catch it, you'll notice that along with a few verses from chapter three, um, we have the same reading that Mark dealt with last week. But I want to briefly revisit it, not to repeat Mark, of course, but for the purpose of helping us to think about the nurturing that is taking place in the life of Jesus, because this is where it begins. These two moments that bookend the silent years of Jesus where he's been in the temple as a 12-year-old and he makes his way home with his parents. And then when his cousin John baptises him 18 years later and Jesus prays and the Holy Spirit falls upon him uh, and his heavenly father speaks to him and over him, I think show us what's going on here, what's being established. These two moments speak about the sonship of Jesus. The sonship of Jesus, that he is the Son of God. That is what is being established in the heart and mind of the young Messiah. Now, we can assume that Jesus, with his good religious family, would have made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover many times. But this year, it's different. Why? Because Jesus is now 12. You see, when a Jewish boy turns 13, it was the tradition that he would assume the responsibilities of adulthood. He would be required to start to act as a man. So in the year before, once the boy turned 12, he would have entered into an intensive relationship with his father. An intensive year of training, an apprenticeship, if you like, with his dad, where the father would nurture his son into his calling to be a man. So obviously what Joseph would have done would have been to train and nurture Jesus in carpentry, his trade, 
the business that Jesus was to go into and look after his family with. But certainly not just that. In fact, more importantly, he would give intensive religious instruction. And so this year of all years, Joseph would take great care and make a huge effort to ensure that he explained to his lad what the Passover really meant, the purpose of it, the implications of it. And therefore, this is the one year that Jesus should have been spending lots of time with Joseph when they went to Jerusalem, walking with him, listening to him, learning from him. But obviously, when they, as, as a village, pack up and head home after a while, because they'd have been traveling in community, so most likely the men would journey with the men, the women with the women, the children with the children, etc. Um, it would have taken a while for them to realize Jesus wasn't there. But when they realized he was missing, this year of all years, they would have been thinking, why on earth would he stay there and not come home with us? So they go back to find him. And when Mary sees him in the temple in the middle of this incredible exchange with these distinguished rabbis that would have been in Jerusalem at, at that time, that Mark spoke about last week, the mother of Jesus asks him why he's done this to them. And she specifically mentions Joseph, his father. How could you treat your father like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching, she says. This year of all years, Jesus, this is the year when you should be with your father, listening to your father, being nurtured by your father. This is the one year that you should be allowing your father to show you what your purpose is, what your calling is. You should be with him, Jesus. What does Jesus say? Mom, I am. I am with my father. Mom, it, it's happening. This is supposed to be the year in which my father tells me who I am and what I'm doing and why I'm here and where I'm going. And mom, it, it's begun. The nurturing has begun. Jesus' heavenly father begins to teach him about his sonship. And that's why Jesus makes this astounding claim. That's why he's frankly comfortable saying, I am about my father's business. You know, Judaism seldom refers to God as father. Very rarely. But never, never did individuals address or pray to God as my father. So when Jesus comes along and talks so comfortably about God, his father, no one's ever seen the level of familiarity, intimacy even, that this young boy is showing. Jesus understands his sonship. He knows he is the son of God. And after this, with his family, uh, Jesus heads back to, down to Jerusalem. And verses 51 and 52 um, tell us what happened that his nurturing continues. He's obedient to Joseph, his earthly father, who continues to do his bit and teaches his, his boy as he's able. But Jesus continues to grow in favour with God too. So this supernatural nurturing is also continuing. But the starting point, the first thing Jesus needed to fully understand before he processes what he has to do, before he comprehended where he was going, he needed to understand where he'd come from, who he was. And this is the moment that is the start of the process of Jesus' recognition of his sonship. 
So let's leave the young lad, Jesus, and his family there in Nazareth. And let's fast forward 18 years. And the next time we catch up with Jesus, we witness the end of this process that began in the temple. Jesus, now a young man, 30 years old, is right at the beginning of his ministry. And he's baptised uh, by John and then he prays and then God from heaven confirms irrefutably and overtly what he had begun to speak into the heart and mind of Jesus about 18 years before. His sonship. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. God declares his position. This is the climax of the nurturing process, the confirmation of the affirmation that was given to the young boy nearly two decades earlier. And you've got to love the words that the father uses here. I certainly hadn't realised it, but when I was studying this passage, uh, a couple of Bible scholars uh, responsible actually for these two substantial but rather brilliant commentaries on Luke's gospel um, pointed out something that I had missed. But the first century witnesses and the readers of this gospel would most certainly not have missed. And that is the Old Testament references in the words of the father to his son. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. You are my son is a direct quote from Psalm 2. A psalm where God tells of the coming of a great messianic king that will deal with evil, defeat justice, a figure of incomparable power. But the second half of what the father says is from Isaiah 42, verse 1. A completely different part of scripture, whereas Isaiah is talking about a mysterious person he calls the suffering servant. A completely different type of character that Isaiah says God will someday send. So you have these two wonderfully different characters, both of whom um, would have been very well known to the first century Jews. But no one in their right mind would have thought that this mighty messianic king and this suffering servant could possibly be one in the same. This mighty warrior king of Psalm 2, whose wrath could flare up in a moment and destroy you. And the suffering servant, who will be despised and rejected, was to be pierced for our iniquities. That can't be the same person. Can it? I mean, how can you come and triumph over evil through suffering? persecution, trial, rejection, and death. And anyway, what kind of king would put himself through that? The type of king who knows who he is, where he's come from, what he's come to do, who he's come to save. That type of king might just be prepared to sacrifice himself for those he loves. The type of king who spends the rest of the Gospel of Luke, the rest of the Bible, in fact the rest of the history uh, of humanity calling men and women into a father-child, intimate, real, life-changing, life-giving, life-saving relationship with God through him. 
The message of Jesus hasn't changed. Here's the simple truth. We also can be sons and daughters. That's his plan for you. That's his plan for me. Jesus goes back to that city where as a young boy, his heavenly father begins to nurture and teach him about his sonship. And now this great messianic king who, as the psalmist in Psalm 2 says, could dash them into pieces like pottery. He allows himself to become the suffering servant. And those religious idiots who were terrified of the very idea of them having got it wrong, got scripture wrong, got God wrong, those religious leaders who were terrified of, of actually having a relationship with God, an intimacy with a father who loved them, a God who could be enjoyed as opposed to a God that was just to be enjoyed. The very thing that Jesus was offering scared them to death. So they took him to a place just outside that great city. And they nailed him to a cross. And they watched him die. They watched the Son of God die. And the rest is literally history. In that moment, he took the rubbish from you, from me. The stuff that would separate us from our holy destiny. And he dealt with it. Why? So you and I could be adopted into that same sonship. Then and only then does everything in our life have a different perspective. Everything this season wants to throw at you. The challenges of the most horrendous year. And the challenges that may well even probably still be ahead of us. Will be viewed through a very different lens. A lens that knows how deep in your soul. However this world wants to try and diminish and devalue and degrade your life. Your work your purpose, you can say from the bottom of your soul, because of your relationship with Jesus, I am the child of a king. I am the child of a king. Amen.